The Claude 3 model family by Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. Haiku is lightning fast and cost-effective, Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed, and Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Learn more at anthropic.com slash Claude. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Nevada Republicans go to the polls this week in a primary and a caucus, one backed by Donald Trump and the other by Nikki Haley. Meantime, President Biden cleans up among South Carolina Democrats, though Dean Phillips, who's challenging him, vows to continue on. Welcome. I'm Kyle Peterson with The Wall Street Journal. We are joined today by my colleagues columnists Kim Strassel and Bill McGurn. Today, Tuesday, is primary day in Nevada. But my understanding, Kim, is that Nikki Haley will be on the ballot and Donald Trump will not. Donald Trump supporters will be asked to come out a little bit later this week for the Nevada caucus. So maybe the first place to start is, how did we get into this confusing situation? (laughs) Yeah, and it is a long and sordid tale. And by the way, has really undermined Nevada's proud claim first in the West. It's actually first and second in the West and in its own state this year. The background here is that Nevada, after decades of very sparsely attended caucuses, decided its legislature decided in 2021 that it was going to pass a law requiring a primary, hoping to get turnout up and voter engagement back in terms of primary competitions. So they passed that. And then when more than a dozen candidates filed for the 2024 Republican presidential election, officials scheduled the primary for today. So far, so good. What wasn't in the law, and whether it was forgotten or purposely omitted is a discussion for another day, is any information about how the delegates would then be allocated on the basis of that primary. And so sensing an opening here, supporters of Donald Trump, which includes a lot of people in the Nevada GOP leadership, pushed to erect a caucus and said that the caucus would instead be the way in which Nevada awarded its 26 delegates. But it also engineered a number of rules. So to be considered for a caucus, a candidate had to pay a $55,000 participation fee. The rules state that no money from outside groups can be used to influence caucus goers. And anyone who's in the caucus can't also be in the primary. And so you had this really weird situation where Donald Trump is in the caucus because it's the real game where you're going to get the delegates. He was initially supposed to be facing Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy, Chris Christie. But since those candidates suspended their campaigns, he's now only facing Texas pastor Ryan Binkley. Meanwhile, Haley had decided to be in the primary. So she's going to be on the ballot today and most likely is in a good position to win the primary. But it won't count for any delegates in the end. It could account for momentum or for claiming, hey, I won the Nevada primary. But the real show in which the delegates get awarded will be happening on Thursday, where Donald Trump is likely to sweep the competition. It's a reminder that there's state laws that often affect party primaries, but they're also private events. So this is the statement from the Nevada GOP. Candidates who participate in an illegitimate process cannot expect to earn legitimate delegates to the Republican National Convention, unquote. And so that's why many commentators have been looking 
past these Nevada results that are going to be coming because there is not a any head-to-head matchup here. And one thing that is going to be notable, though, is just the turnout. Primaries are generally easier to participate in than caucuses. Caucuses are a little more complicated. And so often primary turnout is higher than caucus turnout. So you may have Nikki Haley's team here saying, look, we ended up getting more votes than Donald Trump. If Donald Trump is not facing any real competition in that caucus, there may be less reason that his supporters or fans feel like they need to spend the time coming out to participate and make their voices heard. On the other hand, Donald Trump is going to say that wasn't a real primary, no delegates being allocated. And so that's why a lot of the media is looking past this to that Republican primary in South Carolina, which is scheduled for February 24th, about two and a half weeks here. And just to do a check in on the polls there, uh, Washington Post's Monmouth poll that ended January 30 has President Trump up with 58% to 32% for Nikki Haley. So still a big gap there. Haley spending some time down there trying to make up some ground. Meanwhile, over the weekend, we had the Democratic primary in South Carolina and the separation of these events. uh, Another reminder that these are private party events and you can't have weird outcomes like this. Uh, Another one was the New Hampshire primary we recently had where President Biden supporters were running a write-in campaign because he was not on the ballot. But in South Carolina, at least, he has cleaned up. So this is the result from the primary there. 96% of the vote for Joe Biden, 2.1% for Marianne Williamson, the spiritual guru who has been on TV, been on the Oprah show, and then 1.7% for Congressman Dean Phillips, who is running a challenge saying he supports Joe Biden, but Joe Biden needs to pass the torch to the next generation. And Mr. Phillips, in good spirits there, he congratulated the president on a good old-fashioned whooping, but said he would continue on to Michigan. Let's listen to Phillips on MSNBC on Sunday. I respect Joe Biden. He should have passed the torch. There are wonderful next-generation candidates ready to go. I called them to inspire them. This was not a mission for me, but someone had to do this. And I'm simply saying the quiet part out loud. This is not a mission of antagonism. I'm not pointing out anything Mm -hmm. that is not clear and present and obvious. This notion of encapsulating him, don't debate, don't appear in front of voters, don't do anything unscripted, don't do interviews, don't don't do town halls. He's going to have to. And when people see it, it's going to be really difficult to overcome. Bill, what do you make of this? The lack of traction that Congressman Phillips seems to be getting. And again, the New Hampshire results were a bit odd because President Biden was not on the ballot there. But Dean Phillips pulled about 20 percent of the vote here. And South Carolina has always been historically Biden country. But I suspect that Dean Phillips was hoping for a little bit better than under 2 percent. Yeah, I think, look, in the Democratic Party, The opposition to Joe Biden are really gadflies. No one really expects him to catch on. 20% is pretty good given the odds against him. Joe Biden picked South Carolina to go first because he knew it'd be good for him. So I think there's been no surprises then. When I was at Notre Dame, we used to lose some close football games. And one time someone told me, well, we won the moral victory. Well, I would rather have had the points on the board and won the actual victory. And some of these people, like Nikki Haley, they can win. It might be a moral victory. They might do well. 
They might get more funding for it. But at the end of the day, it's about delegates. And you can't keep losing primaries and hope to be a contender for the nomination. But notable also that Joe Biden is still sitting out important interviews that could start to reach some of the voters he needs, given the polls that he seems to be trailing Donald Trump in many of these swing states. And particularly, the Super Bowl is coming up on Sunday. The network that has the Super Bowl often gives the president an interview. And according to the reporting, this is uh, NBC, that CBS, which has the rights this year, offered the president a 15-minute interview that would air online. And then the network would plan to air about three or four minutes of that during Super Bowl coverage. And Kim, for the second year in a row, President Biden has declined to do that. And this is a trend for the president. He has often, I think, declined to do interviews, at least if you look at the numbers compared to the number of interviews that previous presidents have done. It is harder to get Joe Biden in the chair to ask him some tough questions. This is absolutely crazy. I mean, think about this. Mr. President, would you like the opportunity to speak to millions of Americans at a time when all of them will be watching TV, unfettered, probably with a softball interview, for an extended period of time with no interruptions or pushback? And he says no. (laughs) And I think that is a testament, well, to one of two things or possibly both. One, his minders are worried about what kind of gaffe or mistake he's going to make. This is obviously a big problem for Biden, but it's now become a theme. And every time he's rolled out somewhere, there's another mistake. You know, just recently, accidentally referring to the current head of France as Francois Mitterrand, a man who died in 1996 instead of Emmanuel Macron, who is the current head of France. So that's one possibility. But also, I guess the issue is, what would he talk about even if he could sit down? I mean, does he want to talk about inflation? Does he want to talk about the border crisis? Does he want to talk about his inability to convince Congress to give him the money he wants and needs for Ukraine and Israel? Does he want to talk about energy prices? There's not a good news story here. And The administration floated that trial balloon that was Bidenomics. That is fallen flat. Nobody's buying it because people don't feel anything good happening in their home finances. So I guess I can understand the reluctance there. And Team Biden has certainly, he's been out doing more campaign events ever since he kind of officially launched a few weeks back. But they're local things. They're not people seeing him on TV. And I think his campaign is, again, will be soon under increasing assault and questions for whether or not the president is up for the grueling necessities of a presidential campaign. Hang tight. We'll be right back with more on this in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington can affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab that unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and portfolio. Listen at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. Welcome back. Just to pick up where we left off before the break, you can find a Washington Post headline from October of 2023. Biden gives fewer press interviews. Uh, Here is one from the New York Times, April 2023. Biden holds fewest news conferences since Reagan. Here's one CNN 2022. 
Joe Biden did half as many news conferences as Donald Trump. And so it does seem like this is a deliberate strategy on the part of the White House. And to pick up the clip that Kim was referencing, this is President Biden mixing up the French president with a previous president who died in 1996. He is speaking in Las Vegas at a campaign event. Right after I was elected, I went to what they call a G7 meeting, all the NATO leaders. I was in I was in South England, and I sat down and I said, "America's back." And Mitterrand from Germany, I mean from France, looked at me and said, uh, "said You know, what? Why? How, how long are you back for?" And I looked at him, and the and the Chancellor of Germany said. What would you say, Mr. President? Bill, what do you make of that? The response from the White House is probably that everybody makes mistakes. And by the way, didn't Donald Trump just confuse Nancy Pelosi with Nikki Haley? Maybe it's a fair point. We have an 81-year-old running against potentially a 77-year-old. Yeah, except that Joe Biden does this like every week. We have a new thing. Individually, it might be excused. But it also explains his strategy. As Kim says, not giving interviews. I think the most egregious thing is not explaining his policies, not having a televised address from the Oval Office, for example, to explain what he wants to do in Ukraine and what he wants to do in the Middle East. And it may be because his aides don't think it will help him. When you listen to a clip like this, where he talks about Mitron instead of Macron, you see, maybe it makes sense. Both Donald Trump and Joe Biden are kind of getting ahead by violating the rules. You know, the informal rules like you um, give a Super Bowl interview or so forth. Clearly, they don't want him exposed except under really tightly controlled conditions. Donald Trump, we saw that with the debates. He decided, I'm not going to participate. I think that was a disservice to Republican voters but it probably helped them by diminishing the seriousness of the debates, diminishing the other contenders all to a second-class candidates. So unfair. And I think going forward, what's going to happen, I don't think Joe Biden is going to want to debate and is going to try not to. And everyone says, oh, at some point he'll have to. I'm not so sure about that. I think the press is covered for him and they'll cover again. If you look at it, what would you rather take the heat for? Not debating, not giving press interviews, or giving one and saying something really stupid. But Kim, how long do you think that Joe Biden can keep this up? The voters are going to want to see him out on the campaign trail, I assume some, and maybe those would be limited stops where he comes out of Air Force One and gives some kind of speech or White House speeches, Rose Garden speeches. I do think that Bill is maybe right about the debates here. We may not have any debates in the fall. And one thing that the White House would be able to say is, why would we debate Donald Trump? Donald Trump refused to debate Nikki Haley. And so he's not playing by the rules. The Republicans have said they're not going to accept the debate invitations that are set up by the nonpartisan commission that has run this process for decades. But I do wonder whether the White House will be able to keep up that line all the way to November if they're asking voters to come out and support the president. Well, it is amusing. I saw just the other day Donald Trump is now trying to goad Joe Biden into agreeing to debate him, essentially calling him a chicken, which is hilarious, just given that he won't 
as you say, debate Nikki Haley, although I suppose self-awareness isn't high on the priority list in presidential campaigns. But I mean, the question of how long can he do this? The sad reality is we know from 2020, he could probably do it the entire campaign. He got away with campaigning from his basement. Now, will there be as much tolerance for that this time around, given that he doesn't have the excuse of COVID, etc.? Maybe not. But we do know the media is always giving him passes for things that they would not give passes to other candidates for. I suspect that what he's going to do is a continuation of what we've seen, which are these very tightly managed and choreographed in-person events where he chooses some industry he wants to highlight or some town where the federal government can claim it gave assistance or some specific voting group that they want to highlight. They'll roll them out. He'll wave, give a little pre-planned speech, a few comments, have a lot of supporters get up and speak on his behalf, and they'll call that a campaign event or a rally. I don't know how this hurts him overall, though, because I think you're right, Kyle. At a certain point, people are going to say, you're in charge. Um, And given that one of the biggest issues for Americans these days is his age and concerns about his competency, the duck and hide strategy very well could backfire on them. We're still a long way from November, and there no doubt will be events that intrude on the arguments being made by these presidential campaigns as well. And Bill, your column this week is on that. The headline is, Iran may be the 2024 election spoiler, if listeners want to go find that and give it a read. But what is the argument that you're making? Well, Iran has done this before. In 1980, they really killed Jimmy Carter's chance at re-election. The hostage crisis started the November before in 1979, ran through the election, and it just underscored Jimmy Carter's weakness. Now Iran is back at it, and I'm not sure Biden is going to be strong enough in his responses. I think he hasn't been strong enough thus far to look strong and to get them to stop. So I think that could undermine his thing. That'll accentuate his age, the feeling that people have he's not up to it. And remember, the other two issues plaguing Jimmy Carter were inflation and Afghanistan. In Carter's case, it was the 79 invasion of Afghanistan, which took him by complete surprise, as he admitted, and inflation, which was very high. And in contrast to Joe Biden, Jimmy Carter actually toughened the policy toward the Soviets uh, after the invasion. So I just think that it's going to accentuate his weakness and lead to people concluding he's just not strong enough for the job. Too old. The Mitron thing doesn't help. I think all that's going to go in. And I expect other bad actors from Russia, North Korea to China are going to take advantage of the Iran crisis to create their own mischief. Hang tight. We'll be right back after one more break. ADP knows anything you hear, anything you don't hear, anything you kind of heard, anything you weren't supposed to hear and now have to pretend like you didn't can change the world of work. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. Don't forget, you can reach the latest episode of Potomac Watch anytime. Just ask your smart speaker. Play the Opinion Potomac Watch podcast. From the opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. 
Welcome back. Let's take a couple of listener questions on Friday's podcast, which was about Texas's invocation of this constitutional clause about a state's right of self-defense in times of invasion. And Josh, who calls himself a proud citizen of Texas, says this, while I agree that likening mass migration to a military invasion seems exaggerated, the fact remains that over 150 individuals on the terror watch list were detected entering the U.S., and Mexican drug cartels are known to fly drones over Texas to evade border patrols for drug trafficking. These instances appear to edge closer to what could be considered an invasion. I'm eager to hear your thoughts on this. And my understanding is there has not been a lot of litigation over the meaning of invasion in these constitutional clauses. I would point to one authority here. Here's a white paper by the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And just to summarize some of this, in their view, the American history of the term invasion reveals that its literal meaning is entry plus enmity. Entry alone, which is trespass, is not sufficient to constitute an invasion. They say that is the clear sense of the founding generation. However, past non-state actors like pirates and barbarians fell under the category of invaders in the opinion of certain American statesmen such as Madison, meaning that present-day non-state actors like cartel-affiliated gangs operating within the territory of a U.S. state may also fall under the category of invaders. So that is a little bit of the history and the legal view on the term invasion. And there may be instances where Texas would be able to act against cartels in a way that would at least arguably qualify under this invasion clause. But it does not seem to me like setting up border wire in order to block economic migrants fits that clause. Peter also says he was confused about the section of the Constitution that I quoted. And here it is again. It says that no state without the consent of Congress may engage in war unless actually invaded. And then he points to the next phrase, which is, or in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay. And he says that that appears to be a broader authority and wonders why I did not quote that. And the short answer is that that is not the section of the Constitution that Texas Governor Greg Abbott is pointing to. He is saying, this is his letter from January 24th, he is saying that the federal government has promised to protect states against invasion, and he has already declared an invasion under this clause. And so that's the short answer. The longer answer is, I'm not sure how much that extra phrase actually helps his argument because courts generally interpret the meanings of words by the company they keep. And so if you have a constitutional clause that says states may not engage in war unless actually invaded or in imminent danger, I guess I read that, Kim, as imminent danger, something like an invasion. Again, if you go back to the history, you're thinking about this clause, the founders imagining some far-flung state might be facing an invasion and may need to respond to it before they can get word to Washington before word from Washington can get back. And I think that extra addition of imminent danger means that if you spot the invasion fleet off the coast or over the border, you don't have to wait until it actually touches your territory. The governor can begin to respond to that of his own authority. But I don't think that you can read danger to mean anything. Otherwise, there are states that may say we are in imminent danger from climate change or we are in imminent financial danger of bankruptcy and unlock all sorts of powers that, Kim, again, at least to my view, are not encompassed by the actual meaning of this clause in the Constitution. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, look, I think both of these listeners asked some really good questions because if this is litigated and if it goes up through the court system, these are the kind of questions that the justices are going to have to wrestle with. You know, in my mind, I think you make a good point, though, is that I would have to imagine that especially the textualists in the court system would be looking at this in the context of what the founders meant at the time that it was being written. Your point about distance and communication is a really good one. You know, that particular clause in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay certainly suggests a situation in which, right, like there's no time for the federal government to get there and do the defending that needs to be done to defend against invaders. It doesn't necessarily point to a situation in which states can just, even though they've spoken to the federal government, don't like the federal government's response, make their own decision about what counts as a threat to the nation's borders. Because we do live in this federalist system in which these powers are divided. And in this particular case, on the issue of border defense and immigration, the courts have long held the federal government to be preeminent, even if, as let me stress yet again and again, the Biden administration is doing an absolutely abysmal job of that. The invasion question is also really fascinating, especially when you do start talking about drones breaching American airspace. You know, we had another example of this a little more than a year ago when we had a Chinese spy balloon floating over the country as well, too. And people actually also having a debate at that moment about whether or not that qualified as a form of invasion. And so, again, big, huge, interesting questions for the court. The one thing I would point out here, though, is that it does worry me that we seem to be having so many conversations these days about unprecedented lawsuits and issues that the courts have never addressed. I think it's sort of a statement of some of the dysfunction of government at the moment that so many people feel that they're having to go to the courts to get clarity on things that no one's ever thought through much before because of the actions or inactions of the federal government, which are causing us to experience various crises, whether it be the first time indictment of a former president or the question of a failure to manage and police our borders. Thank you, Kim and Bill. Thank you all for listening. You can email us at pwpodcast at wsj.com. And we do read our email. If you like the show, please hit that subscribe button. And we'll be back tomorrow with another edition of Potomac Watch. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com slash WSJ.